Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. You are here with your host, Auntie Vice. This was this show is a continuation in our series on policy, legislation, and advocacy around bodies and freedom because you cannot separate the body from the politic. Uh, I am really honored today to have Susan Wright, founder and spokesperson for the National Coalition of Sexual Freedom. If you listen to the show at all, you know about half of our guests reference NCSF at some point in it, because for our listeners, they make our lives better in so many ways. So I wanted to have Susan on the show to talk about all the great things they're doing, how you can support them, and how you can get involved. Welcome to Fat Chicks. Ah, Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to have you here. So for our few listeners or our new ones who are not familiar with NCSF, you want to give a quick overview of what you guys do? Sure. We are the advocacy organization for the kink and non-monogamy communities. So that means we are a big coalition of 160 groups and clubs and businesses that serve kinky and non-monogamous folks. And we've been doing this since 1997, so quite a while. And uh, we basically just interface between the mainstream and our communities. We deal with public officials, legislation, trying to change the laws around consent and kink in particular is one of our, our recent initiatives. And we also deal with the media. We do a lot of working with the media, giving interviews, and we train people in our communities on how to talk to the media. So you guys have done a couple of major initiatives that I, I want to talk about. And one of the, the big things that a lot of our listeners may not realize has made a difference in their own lives is changing the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual for the American Psychological Association. And for people who are not familiar with this, this is like a list of all of the psychological disorders you can be diagnosed with. And for a long time, kink and paraphilias were on it. Uh, so do you want to talk about how you guys got involved and what a difference that makes? Absolutely. It was a long project. We got started because we kept on hearing from parents who had their kids removed from their custody if they were identified as being kinky or non-monogamous. And it was far more kinky people. In 2008, we had 124 parents come to us for help, which was way too many. This was a huge problem. And it goes back to when we started NCSF, the accusations against kinky people were that we were either sick or violent. And so we had to constantly fight this uh, and the fact that it was criminalized. Uh, even consensual kink was criminalized. 
So we you worked with the American Psychiatric Association. We worked with their paraphilia subwork group. And they agreed that this was not intended for people who were kinky in in community groups and, you know, playing with consenting adults. And so they were very helpful. They worked with us and we ended up creating a new uh, criteria for the DSM. They did not remove it completely, but they did clarify that as long as you're doing this with consenting adults and even specified if you're in community networks, these folks are mentally healthy on as a whole. And that has transformed everything for us because once that came out, no longer could people, you know, be discriminated against or face the stigma of being mentally ill because we're not right. This is just a sexual preference for some people. They consider it a sexual orientation for others. It's a relationship style. So that was a huge success for us that started the path that we're on right now, which is to decriminalize kink as well. Well, and for I mean, you had just shortly after you had the ch- definition changed in the DSM, you had a lot of parents coming forward and saying, oh, my gosh, this is meant I get custody and I get to see my kids. Right. You had it all of a sudden it went from 124 saying, help, I've, my kids have been taken because I'm kinky to people saying thank you. Right. Oh, yeah. We only had seven parents come to us last year who said they had issues with child custody. I mean, like that is a tiny fraction of what was happening before. So it's clear to us that this was systemic discrimination. This was institutionalized discrimination against us. And once we got this done and we really did a lot of education of the family courts and family uh, attorneys, and we have a brochure on it. So anybody who's facing this come to us and we're seeing people now who have issues with kink. We, it's intersectional issues. They're kinky or they're transgender or they're kinky or they're a person of color. And we definitely see that discrimination falls harder on people with intersectional identities. So we have to all be aware of that, that this there, it really does show there is more discrimination um, happening against these folks. So we are continuing to fight this. We're continuing to do education. We have our kink and polyamory aware professionals database where we refer people to find attorneys who understand about alternative lifestyles. And now we're getting just as many parents, unfortunately, who report that their child custody is being challenged on non-monogamy. So that's the new thing that we're having to like turn our attention to. And we've created a a document for child custody and consensual non-monogamy that has a lot of information that should be helpful for parents who are facing these kinds of attacks. So both kink and non-monogamy have gotten a lot more attention in the media in the last decade than they did when you started. Like, leaps and bounds, more representation, more information. So how does NCSF interface with the press and try to get better representation of who we are? Oh, we put out our media update digest every two weeks. You can sign up to get it uh, through email, or you can just go to our website. We're constantly posting media updates. And the beauty of that is that you can go and tell these media outlets what you think about their coverage. You can tell them something minor, like use this word instead of this word, or, oh, hey, why don't you interview this person? So it's, we've realized that you can have a dialogue with the media and engage with them and explain to them, it used to be very sensationalized. And we started talking about the stigma and the discrimination and how we're harmed by it. And the media covered it. 
And I really think that a lot of the work that NCSF did with the media lay kind of the groundwork for when Fifty Shades of Grey came out. And we had lots of voices in our communities ready to rise up and say, that's stalking and that's not really true consent and there's privilege happening. And then look what happened from that in the, which started basically in 2012 through the movies, 2015. And then we see the resurgence of the Me Too movement where people are talking about power and privilege and consent. And, you know, what it turned what used to be a joke, the casting couch, into something very real for people that... Yes, there is privilege happening here. People are being coerced into doing things that they don't want to do. And that's completely not right and needs to change. So I feel like we're engaging with the media and having this dialogue with society over consent. Well, and it's been amazing because you started that dialogue a long time before the Me Too movement. And as somebody who's worked in politics, you know, I know I couldn't get conversations started with politicians, even like the women's caucus out here didn't want to have a conversation around what really consent is. So you've done a lot of work on this and you have a consent project, correct? Yes, consent counts. We are working to decriminalize behavior between consenting adults. And we are also working to make sure that definitions of consent exist. How 20 states don't even have a definition of consent in their sexual assault law. How are you supposed to tell if somebody consented or not if you don't have a framework to be able to judge it? No wonder prosecutors have such a difficult time dealing with sexual assault reports. And we worked really hard with the American Law Institute to create a legal framework for consent to kink because it's you need explicit prior permission before you use force or restraint on someone because it's too easy once you start then you can force them or coerce them into doing things. You, who can negotiate when they're in subspace, right? Or they've already started being stimulated. So we worked with them and we came up with a legal framework that really reflects our community standards. And NCSF spent a long time working with our community to make sure we were reflecting the community standards in this way back to our consent statement in 2012 and holding consent discussions around the country. So we really believe that defining what consent is, is beneficial for everyone. And now that we know, we see from prevalent surveys, Debbie Herbenick's survey found 30% of adults in America enjoy spanking with their sex. That is millions and millions of people. So we're approaching states to try to adopt this new legal framework, working with allies, especially harm reduction allies because that's so important that we make sure that we are listening to their concerns and they understand where we're coming from with all of this. So one of the things that I've talked about a lot in my own writing and on the show is the lack of legal understanding of consent. It is so all over the place, depending on where you live in this country. If you happen to live in an area where they don't have these definitions on the books or they have uh, legal decisions that really do not recognize consent, how can folks either reach out to you or work with your resources to contact legislators to get this into legislation? Well, we recommend that you volunteer for NCSF. We have a Consent Counts Committee. Anyone can join this committee and participate in this work. We're going to need people in every state to help lead the folks in that state. 
And so we're doing that now. We're actually focused right now in Maryland, Illinois, Oregon, California, and Minnesota. So we are gathering allies in those areas, especially if you're in those states, volunteer and join in because we have a whole strategy of educating everyone in the state, providing um, education to the harm reduction agencies. We've written public policy papers for a number of states that look at the state laws and how we could integrate explicit prior permission with the sexual assault, the assault, and the strangulation law. Because there's been a lot of new laws put on the books about strangulation. And a lot of people don't realize that in their state, erotic choking is illegal, even if you have consent. And that's because of the serious physical and mental health issues that research has uncovered lately. So I would suggest join us and we can work with you on this issue. Well, and understanding how critical it is, because most people get into kink without a thought of what the legal ramifications are if they get found out or something goes wrong. So on the personal level, like if you're into erotic choking, hi, here, <laughs> what do you do to kind of protect yourself around those laws? And how do you establish so you, like your partner isn't prosecuted if you show up and you have marks or something? Oh, your partner could be prosecuted if you show up with marks. And and that's what a lot of people don't realize. NCSF just wants to make sure people are informed about what the situation is. Uh, there is also a lot of non-consensual choking happening right now. Another one of Debbie Herbenick's studies found that over half the college students that they surveyed had been erotically choked. And only half of those had only sometimes or never been asked for consent. So if they're not even being asked if they want this, they are certainly not aware of the risks. And so we have a new uh, document called Is Choking Legal? And it outlines what the state laws are in each state. And it also has just a little bit about some of the health risks that people aren't aware about. Even if you don't have visible injuries, they're seeing that because of the lack of oxygen to the brain, it can have a traumatic uh, response afterwards. So you have to be very careful in how you do this and make sure that it's an informed risk that you're taking. And the people that are doing it need to be very much aware that you can go to jail if you accidentally hurt somebody. We see people charged and convicted for manslaughter. And not only that, we see people have to pay a lot of money when they hurt somebody. You can cause somebody to have a stroke. And so we recently saw a payout, a very large one for somebody who had erotically choked somebody completely consensually. They had a stroke and that was it. Uh, they had medical bills that had to be paid. So we are trying to raise awareness of this. It was, you know, we encourage people to do, you know, role play choking where you just kind of have the hand on somebody's neck where you can feel that light pressure and you can feel the sensations of dominance and control. Or if you like the rush, you can order your sub to do breathing in a certain way. And, you know, you have to keep doing it that way, right? Uh, there can even be punishment elements in there. There's a lot of fun things to do uh, that don't involve just assuming that anybody you're, you're having sex with wants to be choked because a lot of people don't. And you can trigger a trauma response and not even be aware that the person is completely non-consenting to what's happening. Yeah, no, it's it's strange to me that it's become the new thing, right? We have trends in sexuality, 
Uh, do you have any insight of why this is like porn. a thing now? We get a lot in porn, and they're actors. Everyone, they're not really choking each other in porn. That is acting. There is no way the attorneys for these production companies are allowing actors to actually choke each other, much less choke each other unconscious or eyes rolling back. That's acting. And so people are seeing this acting in porn and thinking, oh, they're using, they've always used porn as tutorials because we have a terrible sex education system in this country. If we had better education about consent and risks involved in certain acts and how to protect yourself and how to draw boundaries, a lot of, a lot of people don't have any idea about how to draw boundaries around their own bodies. That's why I love your tagline because without a bodily autonomy, there is no sexual freedom. And I, I believe there's really no freedom. You have to really kind of come back to your own skin and be able to define what you want in your body and then be able to communicate that in, in order to be really free. So speaking of bodily autonomy, we had a court decision this week in Florida around gender affirmation care for minors, where the judge read DeSantis and the, the GOP in Florida for filth, which I love the decision. He just came out and it was like, this is not okay. What you're doing is not okay. And allowed within certain parameters, gender affirmation care for minors. So because all this legislation is tied together with that decision, do you see some hope on the horizon for getting more bodily autonomy court decisions? Um, you know, what are you seeing in the courts? Because so much of the Supreme Court has been hijacked by by conservatives. So is there hope for more bodily autonomy in the near future? I really feel for our LGBTQIA allies that I, I saw something today about it's a state of emergency. And, and it really is because the pendulum has swung so far away from where we were at one point that it's just, it's hard for everybody. And we see these amazing groups that are fighting these issues and they have a budget and they have paid staff and they're, they're, they're swamped because they're trying to to deal with this. I actually just donated to a little group yesterday that, you know, they're just trying to help parents and, and help parents protect their kids from all the um, abuse that is on line and out there in the public sphere that can just have such stigma has such a terrible effect on people. And so anytime you can fight this stigma, it's good. I do see hope because I've been doing this maybe for so long. And because I've been fighting in an area kink and non-monogamy, it's not like we have a lot of allies here. I mean, NCSF is really the only one focused on this work and has been for a long time. And yet, so if we stop doing it, there really isn't a lot of other options. So having experienced such extreme stigma and having seen it change and having seen our efforts actually contribute to that change, I think that's where the hope lies, is people putting their volunteer effort, putting their money towards the things that are important to them. And we just keep fighting. It is a very long road. You got into this around the same time I was getting into grad school in the 90s, which in New York was kind of a, a peak period for kink. Like we had so much great stuff going on. I lived in New York City for 25 years. So that's where I kind of came into kink. And that's where I founded NCSF because 
it, it was perfect. You know, there was a synergy happening in the 90s in New York City. Well, and that's what I was going to ask you about. What kind of brought about the NCSF and founding it? Because there was nothing like it at the time. Well, I was working on a different project for the National Organization for Women, and it was called the SM Policy Reform Project. And at that time, now had an anti-SM policy, uh, mm-hmm. and it was wrapped up in its anti-pornography pro- uh, policy. And we were seeing things like at the Michigan Women's Festival, women were attacking other women who were wearing leather jackets, and the and the leather women had to camp way far outside and then walk around with each other. And I found that really horrific. And I was a longtime now member. So I started this project and organized it around the country for three and a half years to get them to rescind this anti-policy, anti-SM policy. And while we were doing that, so many women kept coming over and saying, I had my kids removed from custody. I lost my job. Or when I divorced, um, they got everything because I'm kinky. And when I was also traveling around, I was able to talk to some of these nascent groups that were forming, you know, around the country. It was it was more of a, a there was less happening. So there was more in between each group. But they were so busy trying to educate and provide the social opportunities for people to get peer support. They were not prepared to be able to look outward. So we decided let's do a coalition of these educational and social groups. And form an umbrella and NCSF could look outward and fight outward and try to change some of these things that were happening. And so that's what we did. And you bring up the the importance of so much of the, especially second wave feminism was very anti-porn and you've Catherine McKinnon and, and all of those very, all porn is bad. It can never be consensual. So how, how is it being addressed now in the feminist communities. What are you seeing? How because we still have a lot of conversation about porn and is it actually consensual if there's a financial aspect for women in all of this? Yeah, it definitely laps over into sex work, uh, legal and uh, criminalized sex work, and the the conversation is still ongoing. I mean, thank goodness with our po- with our um, project, we did get them to rescind their anti-SM policy, and they created a new, it was actually called the Delineation of Lesbian Rights. I don't know why it was in that, but it was. And uh, we do see still issues with feminism in terms of bodily autonomy. Are you just enacting the scripts of patriarchy? I mean, I still hear these discussions. I actually just posted a media update fairly recent about some feminists still have a problem with kink and with sex and with sex work. And that's fine. They can have a problem. It's when they start to organize to say, you all are this, that we have a problem with it. Individuals can make a choice for themselves not to participate, but that doesn't mean it's wrong for all women. And the whole point, I thought feminism, you know, coming from way back, was bodily autonomy, was being able to make your own choice and not have somebody tell me, I know better than you what you need. So this is an ongoing discussion. And we've had a lot of of pro-doms on the show, um, especially long-term pro-doms. People have been doing this for 20, 30 years. Where does NCSF fall in the realm of sex work? And, and what are you doing? Are you doing anything to interface discussions around types of sex work? Oh, we have supported our professionals since the beginning. 
And that was a deliberate choice that we support anyone who's doing any kind of associated sex work or kink, kink for pay. And we have fought for this industry in a lot of different ways when Unfortunately, the uh, Podom industry in New York City was attacked by the commissioner, the police commissioner, because of an incident that happened that was an unfortunate one-off incident. And they just focused on the industry and shut down clubs and arrested Podoms that we knew were not soliciting for sex. They, We knew these people. But it's very difficult to fight. I am thrilled to see these groups like Decriminalize Sex Work. Uh, spring up to see Woodhull fight this so much through uh, fight FOSTA, as well as the Earn It Act, which also has kind of tangential effects on the sex work industry. So we ally with these big organizations. We work on projects. We raise awareness to get people to try to fight back on legislation. I actually just gave a media training for one of Woodhull's projects for uh, sex worker advocates to how to better talk about this in the media and how, you know, sex work is all conflated into prostitution. And it's just not true. There's just so many different kinds of sex work that uh, they, that all are just stigmatized. And, and it's, I'm just thrilled to see that there has been huge strides made and there is money going to fund this fight. So you bring up the Earn It Act, and that's what we started last season with, was I was talking about it, because it's horrific. Do you want to give us an update on kind of where we're at with the with Earn It as it moves through the, the legislative process? Oh, it's just the thing that will never die. <laughs> I mean, we're going to have, I know, another round of us like having to like put out and like, please write to your legislators. And I know it gets tiresome, but just do it, because these kinds of things that are trying to restrict our freedoms online, restrict our ability to communicate about this. This has been a problem from the very beginning. You know, when we see kink groups, you know, the hotels try to keep us from having a conference there. They're just trying to keep us from talking to each other and from meeting each other. And so we have to fight this as much as possible. And the Earn It Act is Oh, you know, the latest, I mean, FOSTA is still really horrible. It just decimated the sex work community uh, where people can't even find peer support to be able to discuss things. And yet, ironically, OnlyFans has taken off, right? <laughs> you know, how, how how does that happen? Who, you know, who knows the repercussions of these this legislation when they try to, like, muzzle us? Uh, so we have to fight it. So I'm glad you're raising awareness. It's coming back. It always does. And we will have to fight it back again and hope that the pendulum starts swinging a little less invasive. I don't understand why people are talking about the freedom on one hand, and yet they want to be so invasive on the other of people's private lives. Let people do what they need to do and want to do <laughs> in their private lives. And as long as they're not harming people and they're not doing it with under 18, you know, we can have protections in place. And I think that's what people real, don't realize is they're just like completely anti-sex without realizing, well, there's, there's, it, that's like being anti-food, you know, there, there's ways to, to eat in moderation, you know, there's ways to exercise in moderation. It's like hand-washing. There's nothing bad with hand-washing, but you can do it in a way that might be harmful. So we can do the same thing with sex and we can talk about sex in that way. And for our listeners, I'll just put a couple of things out in the show notes. I will have a link. I have a draft letter 
for your legislators on the Earn It Act. If you want that as a, a template, um, I will put the link in the show notes. It's also on my blog, loveletterstoaunicorn.com. And for sex workers who are looking for peer-to-peer support, I work with a therapist here in California, uh, Del Phoenix, and we run a trans and non-binary sex worker support group online every other week. And you can get the tickets through Forbidden Tickets. We've got the events up through August, so I'll put that in the show notes too. Just if you're a sex worker and you you need some time to talk to other people in the industry, right? It makes a difference. It makes a huge difference to get that peer support to be able to push down that stigma, push it away, and to also ask questions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's every job, there's a learning curve. And there's always new stuff to learn. So you've been doing this forever. Where do you get your support and refresh? Because NCSF takes on stuff that is exhausting and never ending to deal with. So how do you refresh? Well, my husband has been NCSF's first uh, volunteer and staunchest volunteer uh, since before we got married. So we've been together 30 years and he is now our membership coordinator. And so he is very supportive in all of this and completely supportive in all of this in terms of, you know, this is a volunteer job for me. So he is definitely having to give for NCSF to go on as well as to travel with me and all of that. I also have amazing activist friends. I have to tell you, this is my community. I I go to events. I participate in things. Uh, And when I moved from New York City to Arizona, I dove right into the community here because I wanted that local community. And I met some amazing friends here. So I find that that's really important. I know some people don't get involved in community, but for me, it's very important. And I also have family that's very supportive. I'm super lucky that I have such an open and understanding Family, even even though my parents are nearing 90 here, you know what I mean? And yet they wholeheartedly support me. So I feel very privileged. And I think that's how I've been able to do a lot of this work, because I have such privilege in that way. Yeah, it's it makes an amazing difference. And Arizona, so Arizona is very hostile to abortion, hostile to so much. But I want to talk about the community for a minute because I've been down there. I've worked with Apex. I know you've worked with Apex down there, the Arizona Power Exchange. How have you found the community down in Arizona? Well, because of Apex, wonderfully uh, organized community center for the lifestyle. A variety of different groups meet there. I'm actually giving a Got Consent workshop on June 12th. And uh, I am giving a consent mixer for one of their parties in July. So it's going to be a pre-party mixer where people can ask each other consent questions and maybe win a a prize. So people who are, we we find that's important for people who are new. And it's very difficult to get people to sit down in a consent workshop, right? But you want to meet other people, you want to have fun. And so we kind of try to make it really fun. So I participate a lot through NCSF. But I also really just enjoy the community. It's very vibrant. Along with Apex, um, we have a bunch of different groups that cater to different interests and needs, including lifestyle groups, consensual non-monogamy, swing groups, polyamory groups. We have the big Southwest Love Fest that happens in Tucson, which we went to, and it was amazing, if you're interested in it. We did lose our um, big Phoenix a conference, but I think that it's coming back and it's going to be called decadence. 
So it looks like we're kind of ramping back up again after the decimation of COVID, which unfortunately did hit our communities really hard. There was a lot of people that just didn't have the spoons to be able to keep a group going and switch to all virtual. And of course, the people who were running brick and mortar clubs were under huge pressure because unless they had the money to be able to keep it going, we've seen clubs around the country fold. It really did change the community. Now you bring up consent with with people who are coming in because we always have new people coming into the community. It's always been that way. How have you seen consent change in the 30 plus years you've been involved in the community? I think that the conversation, I've been involved in the conversation since the beginning. I came in in 91. And the conversation started with the safe, sane, and consensual, right? And then it kind of moved to a more understanding of, well, you also have to be aware of the risks. It's not like everything is safe that we do. And so risk-aware consensual kink actually came out of a conversation we were having on the test, uh, the Oil and Spiegel Society's chat thing where Gary Switch just kind of chimed in and said, how about risk aware consensual kink? And that kind of, and like amazing took off. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we have different things that came out prick, which is about personal responsibility. There is an element to, if something happens, empowering yourself to speak up and to make note of what your boundaries are. I mean, that's can't be universal because there's some people that um, survivors that unfortunately are not in a place to be able to do that. But I do think that's something we need to teach people because it's just not taught. And of the four C's. So I think what we've done is we've kind of gone to our more nuanced understanding of consent, Uh, understanding that there are things that contradict being able to consent. If you're not of a sound mind, uh, if you're having a mental health issue where you can't make a choice for yourself, if you're too drunk to drive, you're too drunk to consent to kink, right? So, and then this whole thing about... If you're asleep, you know, can you consent to that? And it's like, of course, you can have an agreement with a, a long-term partner and have discussions around that. And that's why I think kink is a journey. You don't want to do some of these things with new people. You want to wait until you have somebody that you really understand and trust because, of course, you can't withdraw consent if you're unconscious. And legally, in the United States, you have to be able to withdraw consent. And in Canada, they recently had a court case around that. So having this discussion, these are things that people didn't even really think about. And then, of course, when we developed explicit prior permission, it really kind of just boils down to you have to talk about what you're going to do before you do it. And you have to talk about the intensity of it. Like, you know, a slap on the face is one thing being punched in the face is completely different. And you have to understand the risk involved. You know, hold the side of the face before you slap so that you don't dislocate the jaw. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so that's a conversation. So we're saying if you can't talk about it, you're not ready to do it, right? And then you have to be of sound mind, over 18. You have to have a way to stop at any time, even with consensual non-consent. I don't know where this started, but back in my day, consensual non-consent did not mean that you can't safe word. Everybody still had a safe word because what if you're triggered? What if you have an asthma attack? What if you have to pee? I mean, <laughs> at some point, you might need to stop the scene. And again, legally, you're it's not a roller coaster. You're allowed to stop at any time. So this development of, oh, I'm doing consensual non-consent, so that means I could do anything to somebody and they can't stop me. Well, what's the difference between that and abuse? You know, so legally, 
we say have a safe word. It's actually been kind of codified in the American Law Institute's Model Penal Code on Sexual Assault. This will be published next year. You'll hear a lot more about it. We're doing a ton of information and education within our communities. And then once it gets published, you know it's going to go mainstream. And that's when we'll be able to really launch all of our lobbying effort and go very public with all of this. But we definitely want to make sure people are aware of it because it's intended to replace that old case law that found consent is not a defense to things like a writing crop and nipple clamps and hot wax. I mean, common, non-injurious things we do. So this is a huge step up. And I'm really excited about it because when I've gone out and spoken, I occasionally speak with fraternity and sorority groups around consent and safety and dating and all of that. There is a movement here in California in the Greek system to kind of find a way to codify consent for them. So with this project, when it comes out, you actually have a framework for it. Um, is there an anticipated date for for that coming out? Well, the American Law Institute said that they are going to be publishing the Model Penal Code on Sexual Assault, which was revised for the first time since 1962, by the way, which is why sexual assault laws were in such terrible disarray in the United States. But they're going to be publishing it, they said, in 2024. And we haven't been able to pin down a date any closer than that. But I think once they do, it's explicit prior permission is brand new. You know people are going to be looking at it. And as for the Greek system, you know, uh, since the Me Too movement, a lot of universities have adopted an affirmative consent model, which this really is, is an affirmative consent model. And maybe it would help to lay out the fact that, yeah, you need to talk about, hey, you know, this is what I like to do. This is what I would like to do with you. Maybe tonight, maybe next week, you know, um, and find the common ground. And get out of this idea that talking about sex means you're not going to have it somehow. <laughs> or or it's, you know, I, I don't know why people are looking for the loopholes. I have found that if you talk about what you both want and you're on the same page, sex is so much better. So hopefully, hopefully this will help with that. Some of the feedback I've gotten from, from people who've been in my, my lectures and classes is that if you talk about it, it makes it less sexy. Is there? <laughs> it's foreplay. It's the sexiest foreplay you can do. It's it's not like you're going to sit down. I mean, I think Fifty Shades of Grey did kind of a disservice in some way that they sat down and they were like, you know, in their business suits. Go to coffee. Text somebody. Say, hey, I was thinking about doing this with you. It was really turning me on. And then the other person could go, hate anything to do with my feet or whatever it is that right let's do this instead i had an idea that we would like kind of do this it's sexy it gets everybody hot and bothered before you even get into each other's space it is talking your the brain is the biggest organ in sex and if folks want to find the stuff you guys offer on consent and csf or you know fly you out to do a workshop. How do they go about doing all of that? Well, you can go to our website, ncsfreedom.org. So it's National Coalition Sexual Freedom.org. And we have our volunteer form on Get Involved. We have our education outreach project. We have a form there where you can request a virtual workshop or an in-person workshop. And if we have somebody in the area, we'll send somebody in person. 
And if you're having an issue, if you're an individual who has a consent incident and you need to talk through it, you can contact us through our incident reporting and response. And we also help groups with their consent policies and procedures because this community must self-regulate. We're not a knitting circle. We, we can't just go, oh, I didn't see it, so it didn't happen. No, especially now that more and more people are getting involved and out, we're seeing liability issues for organizers. You need to make sure that you are a true private membership group and you restrict your membership to people who fit the culture of your club. So there's lots of different ways. And then also social media on Instagram or National Coalition Sexual Freedom. On Facebook, we're NCS Freedom. Uh, we have a Tumblr account. Our Twitter is kind of paused at the moment until we see what's happening, but uh, you can always contact us on there as well. And you, you bring up, you know, all the different clubs that are out there and, and ways to self-regulate. For clubs, what are what are the big challenges right now in coming up with consent policies? Because honestly, every one that I've been a part of in the last five years, we've had to relook at how we draw those lines. So what are the big issues you're seeing with in, in lifestyle clubs around consent? Well, we have a sample consent policy for clubs and events, and we really suggest that you go to it. You can adjust it <laughs> to fit your club, but it's got kind of the 10 basic things which outline what's expected from people not to touch each other, to negotiate what you're going to do, whether it's a swing club or a kink club, Make sure you talk to somebody before you actually do it, as well as make sure they're of sound mind. Make sure that you're not taking photos where there's other people behind you. Make sure you're not outing people but casually. You see them on Facebook and say, hey, I saw you at that party. Don't do it. People are still getting fired for being kinkier and monogamous. So it outlines some basic parameters. It also even has in there, if something happens to you. Here's how you deal with it. Say no, thank you. You know, feel free to contact the person who is taking reports at the event. And then we have a very extended procedures, which includes things like questions to ask. You want to ask both sides questions. You you want to consider the severity. You don't want to be policing people's interpersonal lives. That can get you into more trouble than anything. But you do want to be dealing things like sexual assault, assault blackmail and outing because that's a day that's a risk to all your other members so we really lay it out and we'll actually do a private tutorial with your board to kind of go through it and hear your concerns and give you examples and it's very important that organizers do this because organizers are being sued they are being sued for defamation for talking about consent incidents in public they are being sued for medical bills for their own volunteers harming somebody at their event or for having rules at their event. Um, like we suggest don't allow erotic choking at your event. It's just too risky to the people that are running it. You know, you'll be held liable. So there's a lot of things that people don't realize that they're just thinking, Oh, let's just have a party <laughs> and invite some people over. And you don't realize your insurance is not going to cover it. If, <laughs> if you're holding a, a party in your house, and you really do need to have very good rules uh, if you're going to be hosting something like that. So we believe in the health of our community. So we try to help groups. We don't judge, but we really try to help them so that they're not at risk. Or at the very least, they're informed of the risks that they're taking. And that's so critical because you know, as somebody who's been in the community, I came into the community around the same time you did. In 30 
plus years, you see a lot of shit and you learn a lot of things. And so for newer folks, they can think, well, this is just getting a bunch of people together and putting a post on FetLife. And it's so much more complicated than that when you get into the nitty gritty. Yeah, I, it really is because you're kind of putting your life in, in 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 the hands of every person who attends your event. And you're particularly with the people that are teaching for you or volunteering for you. And that's why we say it's really important to take consent reports, even if it's on your friends. And I know it's more difficult to deal with, but come to NCSF and we can offer guidance because that's what's going to get you in trouble and have you having to take an equity line out on your house to pay for an attorney, which is just painful. I see the worst case scenario um, with our incident reporting and response. We help hundreds of people a year. So we really kind of have a finger on the pulse of what's happening. And what's happening right now <laughs> is that less people are closeted. So that makes that automatic and more people are litigious. People are angry right now. So that is a bad combination. And so you need to protect yourself. And, and I can't underscore that more strongly. And we will have all of those links in the show notes for our listeners. Is there anything in the next year or two you're really looking forward to? Well, we're going to go to the APA, the American Psychological Association Conference in D.C. And that happens uh, August 3rd to the 8th. And we'll have a big booth there. We're going to likely be the only booth, exhibit booth on adult sexuality, as usual. And we'll be providing a ton of information to all of their attendees, uh, trying to get more people to sign up on our kink and polyamory or professionals list and spreading information about consent, because a lot of these professionals are the ones that are helping individuals. I mean, that that stat I said about 30 percent of people are spanking. That same survey found less than four percent of adults in America have attended a sex workshop or a BDSM party. So the professionals are very important because they're serving the bulk of the people that are doing this. So I'm very excited about that. And we're also kind of doing a tour of the, the lifestyle events. Um, Tess is going to be at Naughty in New Orleans in July, and we're going to Sin City in October. So we're really trying to do a lot more work with the swing clubs and the non-monogamy groups that are holding events to make sure that consent is a, a, a an important part of their process. Which is really important because those groups have had a lot less conversation about it than kinky groups. Uh, consent yeah. really was much more rooted in kink than non-monogamy and swing in my experience. Yeah, it really is. It's It was an implied before denied model in swing clubs, and which is similar to Leatherman. Um, they mm -hmm. often had a, a, an implied before denied model. And in leather circles, it's easier to announce in this area, this is what's going to be happening. When you talk about a swing club, you just really can't have implied before denied because it's just predators can come in and it can be awful. And also, I want to let everybody know we're going to be at um, a couple of Pride events this year, uh, Capital Pride in D.C. and New York City Pride. Yay. If you want to plug things, where to find you, how to get involved, how to support NCSF financially, because that's always a thing. Uh, go ahead and then we'll make sure those links are there for our listeners. Great. Yes. NCSfreedom.org. You can join as a member. You can make a donation and it's a tax deductible donation and every penny goes to our work. We're all volunteers. And so when you're, when you're sending us money, you're actually 
contributing to us getting out to educate professionals and create our materials. And we've done just so much work for being an all-volunteer coalition. It really shows me how heart is so important. And it we get the support of the people in our community, we can do more and more. And this is such a critical organization. Like I said at the beginning, if you've ever taken a class of mine, you know NCSF is on my recommended list. The Kink Aware Professionals is critical. They work with so many people who've been on the show. Thank you for being on. Thank you so much for your work. And we'll make sure our listeners get all of those links and events. Great. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.